Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Roach. Welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. We are starting out nice and fresh with technical difficulties. Mr. Producer is still trying to uh, get online from his remote location. Uh, we have a good show lined up. Um, we hope we get all our guests online and connected. But as usual... We'll deal with what we got, and we'll roll with what we got. Um, we're going to start out with some uh, recap. I think our last show, if I'm not mistaken, was on the 21st of February, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe the 14th. I think we we went long on a week. Um, well, today is, uh, or this month, is Women's History Month. And of course, in my household, being the uh, sole male, grown male, not counting the two grand boys yet, uh, you know, they're using it to their advantage. Talking about when uh, Men's History Hour <laughs> uh, happens. I'm not sure when that is on the calendar. Comparing it to... Uh, Women's History Month. But what we want to talk about when we uh, get to it is uh, about women in treatment. And um, we're going to talk to some women, hopefully, that have gone through treatment and experienced it and a little bit of what their life was like prior to and during the treatment process and uh, post-treatment and how things are now looking ba- looking back as they can look back over the horizon and see where they've come from. Why is this special in terms of the uh, recovery context? Well, one thing we know, we've, we've seen it with our own eyes and then we know it statistically that women are always underrepresented in, uh, in treatment, in, in any form of treatment for various reasons. 
Swan Lake had 250 beds, 190 men, 60 women. So you do the math on that. And I think Parksville was a similar similar ratio. Uh, more often than not, so don't quote me as this being the gospel, but more often than not, um, women have more barriers getting into treatment. If they have children, that's a barrier. Um, finding uh, a safe place for the children to be while they're while they if they ch- are choosing to pursue treatment, that's a barrier. Um, you know, sometimes they've reached a point with family members and burned bridges um, where that becomes a difficult issue. We certainly don't want, uh, even though sometimes that's the last resort, the the state, my hands are in quotes, um, to uh, take the children, even if it's a temporary basis. Um, I never liked that option. Sometimes it's the only option, and sometimes uh, it is a saving grace um, and gives the woman an opportunity to um, um, get herself back on the right track and um, regain custody of the children and, uh, and, mo- and move on with her life. More often than not, at least from my experience, uh, no matter how how far down the bridge has been burned, um, you know, there's usually, if not a mother, grandmother, aunt, somebody um, that's going to uh, take those children and, and, and allow that woman to uh, go into treatment. But like I said, it is a barrier. And... It's not the only one. Uh, we've talked about how women sometimes have more means than a man uh, in terms of uh, procure, procuring uh, drugs, and that keeps them out there longer. Mr. Producer, is that you, sir? It sure is. I am I here. Presume, I presume you have not resolved your technical difficulties, so you're calling in on your on your phone line. Correct. Uh, technical difficulties were not solved. However, we shall we shall overcome. <laughs> well, I I think we got to give some background uh, because you know just going back to our initial startup of the show and the and before we went live and the thirty or sixty days we spent working out all the bugs and 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 technical difficulties. We did think, or we thought we had the technical difficulties worked out and even tested it, and it worked out beautifully. Uh, sure did. Except, except for when it came time to go live today. <laughs> it's a, we were it's getting a bug. error messages and everything it's of the sort. Yep, there's a bug somewhere, and we'll uh, watch it work, and we'll figure it out after the fact. <clears throat> yeah, that's um, probably what will happen. Um, so I, I was just in the middle of a little soliloquy about, uh, the difficulties that women have or may experience in getting into treatment and why their numbers are always way underrepresented. Um, so I'll put a break on that for a second. I'll get back to that and I'll just go back. Um, is there anything, Mr. Producer, that you want to, um, uh, in terms of news or, and, or, uh, sports 
right now there's nothing for me sports wise. The draft is still a month and change away, so uh there's nothing for me to talk about there. And of course my New York Knicks are uh, a laughing stock, so I don't have anything on the sports front. No, I don't I don't have much on the sports front either, other than uh did you hear about what happened to Andrew Bogut? I did and I'm not surprised and uh I think it's uh par for the course. There you have it. No, I've got nothing, so that's that sounds good to me. We could jump right into the show. Okay. I believe and I'll add this uh live, I believe we have one of our uh featured guests, if you will on hold. So I'm going to pop into the screening room real quick just to make sure, and then I'll join you back in a moment. Okay. So as we were talking about um, women in treatment, an interesting tidbit, um, even though their numbers are always statistically underrepresented and so they may make up one-third of the treatment population or one-quarter of the treatment population, depending on the size of the program or the residential facility, et cetera. Um, when, when their minds are right, they usually, they usually represent the, uh, the dominant part of the house, the dominant spirit of the house. So they we like to see them in positions of authority. Um, at Swan Lake, we used to purposely, way more often than not, choose women to be the chiefs of the house. And for those of you out there who don't know, the chief is the person who runs – that the, the operational aspect of the house for the for the family for the clients and is responsible for all facets making sure everyone stays on task on structure and gets to groups on times etc they're responsible for all of that and more often than not we always chose a woman for that position um and the guys hated it <laughs> the guy the males hated it when there was a female chief um they're usually no nonsense, uh, and and that's a good thing. You know, for me personally, it's it's an interesting dynamic since number one, of course, I have a mother. I have three sisters, two older, one younger. Um, I'm married, so I have a wife. I only have daughters, um, so I've only raised daughters. I'm in the process now of helping raise two grandboys, but they're still young. Um, so, and in our larger family, uh, there are way more nieces than there are nephews. Um, so the women, you know, outnumber the, the, the males um, significantly. So for me, as a person, as a, being in treatment as a client and then as a, a staff person, um, there was nothing new for me, but it was very interesting, sometimes comical to notice, uh, from a male's, uh, perspective, Mr. Producer, are you back on? His mic is on, but I don't hear him. So (laughs) 
from a male's perspective, uh, they oftentimes um, too kindly uh, to it, and so we we would get to the bottom of what was what was the issue, and it was very interesting, very interesting dynamics, and though and those who were mature enough and and wanted to challenge themselves to really get underneath it, um, did a lot of growing, a lot of growing. I'm going to keep on checking on our uh, producer here because his mic is live, but I can't hear him, so I don't know if he can hear me. So let's see if I can pick him up. You might hear him in the background, so uh, just give us one second. But th- those men, as I was saying, no, sir, I cannot. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So why don't we? Um, Let's bring on um, – we were supposed to have three guests. Right now I think we have one, um, and she's been a long-time listener. Um, Catherine, are you there? Yes, I am. I'm just smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just happy to be on, so I'm just smiling. Okay. So before we get into our, our topic, I, saw, I told you I wanted to comment – on the little uh, gift you sent us back to uh, OCG. Um, There's a little interesting note to that little gift. So we had sent uh, Catherine, she's been a long-time listener from our very first show um, over the holiday season, some OCG mementos um, that we give out. And um, she responded in kind and sent us back a little something, uh, two pens. And when I, I didn't actually, I'm not sure when you sent it, but I I didn't actually receive it until last Wednesday, I believe. Um, And when I opened it up, so I immediately thought, oh, okay, so a couple of pens with, you know, the the Daytop Village um, address and everything like that but when I read the address and saw that it was Jamaica Queens and the Merrick Boulevard outreach I said I had to keep them for myself because I don't know if you know but I grew up I did I grew up a half a mile from there in Rochdale Village South Jamaica Queens okay, okay. Um, and I didn't know of course the outreach was located there until I actually got into Daytop um, so to see that address and see it say Merrick Boulevard and all that just brought back a ton, ton of memories. Cause it's, like I said, less than a half a mile from where I grew up and we rode our bikes down there and went down there to play basketball. I mean, it's just around the way. So I was like, no, nope, I got to hold on to these. These have a special meaning. So I appreciate you sending those. Um, uh, well, I read them, we were going to give one way. Say that again. 
You're quite welcome, but you got to give one to the co-host. Yes, he will. He will get the one that I can't figure out how to operate. <laughs> I think that must be a pencil. <laughs> no, I think that you have to. Well, I don't really know. I don't remember, but I know it was like one is supposed to be a pencil and one is supposed to be a pen. But I don't know if that's the, the two that's like that. Okay, well, I'll let him figure that one out. So hold, hold on one second. Let me see if uh, Mr. Co-host is – are you back live, sir, or no? I believe so, yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Perfect, yeah. So I'm going to – the phone that you just brought live, I'm going to leave that as the screening phone because uh, that one wasn't working for whatever reason. But this phone, the landline, I'm good. I'm connected. We're here. So I'm going to leave this one on the live mic. Okay, so we already have um, Catherine Jackson on the line. And Beautiful, um, beautiful. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for being a guest Hi. today. Thank you, too, for having me. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. Is, is it true I hear that there is some sort of gift that has been bestowed upon me, one that the host can't quite <laughs> figure out how to use? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, well, beautiful. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, I won't have that same issue. Well, well, no. Not. The 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 gift. Hold on a second, because I got my bag right next to me as I'm uh, rifling through to find it. Because it's a it's a pen set with the uh, Daytop Village Inc. Um, address information on it, but. I thought it was going to say, you know, 40th Street and whatnot, but it's actually um, the Queens, uh, uh, one of the Queens outreaches right around the block, right down the way from where I grew up, Mr. Producer. And so oh, beautiful. I was originally going to make sure that they went to the Hall of Memories as, as a memento from Daytop, but uh, when I saw the address, I said, nope, I'm going to have to keep those, but you're going to have to get the one that I can't figure out how to operate. And see if you can figure hey, it out. Hey, that works but for that, me. I will figure out how to operate it. And even if I cannot, uh, that will be something that I will put on my new desk in my new office. So that is perfect. Yes, sir. Congratulations. So, Thank Catherine, you very just much, well, Catherine. I appreciate it. Welcome. You're very welcome. But what Catherine, I wanted to... was to have a piece of the old day top. Yes. That was the whole thought behind it, so you could have a piece of the old daytime. Well, I I truly appreciate that. As uh, I came through the the daytop way, the facility when it was daytop before we switched to our common ground. So that is a part of where my heart will always lie, and it will be great to have that maybe as a conversation starter for some of the new clients who come into my office who. I've only heard the myth and the fable of Daytop, and I can hopefully give them some information. So that will make for a great conversation piece. Thank you. Oh, wait a second. I found it. So I wanted to read the address. Yep. All right. No one can see me, so I have to – sorry, but at 53, I'm now forced to put on my reading glasses to read that small print. All right. Daytop Village, Inc., 91-01 Merrick Boulevard, right around the way, Mr. Producer. Jamaica, New York, 11432. Phone number 718-523-4242. I said, wow. 
Wow. Beautiful. So, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. It's amazing how small things can make you feel. All right. So, Mr. Producer uh, Catherine did make an effort to contact our other two guests, but um, um, he left them messages. Um, I was communicating with uh, Miss Crystal um, and gave her the time and all the instructions, but he's been unable to reach her and Miss Patricia, so um, maybe they'll call in during the time or not. I don't know, but um, you have a tremendous story in and of itself. Thank you. So I want to start you off by asking this question, and that is, who was Katherine Jackson before Daytop came into her life? I was a heroin user of 15 years with three children. Um, Before Daytop got in my life, I started using drugs because my mother died, and I never had a chance to really have a relationship with her. So when she died, I knew that I could never have that relationship. And my children found out that I was using drugs, and made a, my oldest daughter, Sinatra, made a phone call to Daytop Village, and they told her that I would have to make the phone call. And she told them that I would never make that phone call and how much she cared about me and what a good mother I was before drugs. I started using drugs at 35, too, but I always have been around drugs. I grew up in the 60s with heroin. So by the grace of God, the lady took the information. Catherine, at some point I'm going to interrupt you because you're going to say things I think are very critical. You you said you didn't start using until age 35, but, you know, drugs and whatnot have always been around you. How how yes. did how were you able to not be involved during the you know with it around you before you started using? The guys that I was messing with wouldn't allow it. They were drug okay. dealers themselves and wasn't going to have me using drugs. Okay. And um, my daughter made the phone call. They called me in to be interviewed, and uh, I had to go to court to give one child to another child because what they was my youngest child was 16 years old. And at the time they didn't know that I had older children. So when I went to court, the whole court system was talking about taking my child and putting it in foster care. But because I had older children, I was able to give one child to another child. And they took care of each other while I was in treatment. Mm -hmm. So, um, as I was in court, sitting there in court, the court was finna close, and the judge told the bailiff to go downstairs and call my daughter's name. They called her, they let her upstairs, and at the time, my daughter was 15 going on 16 years old. And the judge called her in, talked to her, and he said to her, what does she want from, from the situation? And she said, my mother just to be my mother again. So they called me back in, and they told my told me that my daughter was 15 years old. She had a she was an A1 student. She went from an A to an F grade, 
she had got a stomach ulcer from sitting outside of the bathroom watching her mother use drugs and afraid that her mother was going to OD. So the judge was like, what are you going to do now? And I said, whatever y'all want me to do. So this man said, well, we're going to put you in daytop. I will come visit you, but you have to go away because you're killing this kid. Then I had to go down to the welfare and get Medicaid cards and stuff like that. So anyway, I end up in daytop, went to Far Rockaway. My daughter, 16 years old, took me, my son, 21, and my granddaughter took me to Daytop Village. When we got there, I had left some documents, not knowing that. Let me, um, let me, let me, let me, let me interrupt right there. Before mm-hmm. you arrived and pulled up at Far Rockaway, did you have in your own mind any preconceived notions about what this was going to be like, what, what, what Far Rockaway was going to look like, et cetera? I thought I was going away to a ranch. Okay. I walked in Far Rockaway with a mink coat on and Louis Vuitton <laughs> luggage. And Ellen Buckbearer told my son, she can't bring this stuff here. And she left documents. So being the drug addict I was, I said, I'll go get them. Ellen said, no, you can't because you won't come back, mm-hmm. which was my intention was to get out of Far Rockaway. Mm-hmm. So my son went and got the documents. I was approved for Far Rockaway and everything. And I watched my daughter from the window screaming and hollering for me not to go. I stayed in Far Rockaway 21 days, and they sent me upstate. I met Alan Benjamin. When I walked in Far Rockaway, which I still have to do, let me slow you down because there's an important part of this. So at some point while you're in Far Rockaway, you get the the notice, the call from someone that, hey, you're going upstate tomorrow. And no, it didn't that, happen like that. How did you find out you were going My, upstate? What happened was a young a younger person threatening me, you know, calling okay. me names and over and all of this here. So okay. Donna Nunzo was watching me. And I've always been an evil, mean person. That was my way of keeping people off of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched this girl go in the bathroom, and my intentions was to hurt her while she was in there. Mm-hmm. And Donna called me back, and she said, oh, you're leaving tomorrow because I'm not going to have you hurt nobody here. Mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to leave for like another week, but I was right. out of there the next day. So let me ask you this. Um, when you got in that van the next day to head upstate. Normally the van, you know, goes through Far Rockaway, snakes its way around and, you know, sometimes goes through the city. Did you pass did you pass through any familiar territory on your way? While I was in Far Rockaway, the A train that could take me straight back to my house was passing by every day. Mm-hmm. Um, my all, all, my only thought was how to get on that A-train. And this mm-hmm. counselor, Darlene Buffalo and Gary Kaleo, it was on a Friday, my first day. Darlene walked up to me, seeing me sitting at that table trying to figure out how to get out of here. And she said, just stay until Monday. 
Could you do that for me? And I'm wondering, why does this lady want me to stay in this here dump to Monday? But I stayed. I stayed away from people. I was really mean. No, I didn't pass any things because I never really experienced Queen, so I didn't pass anything that was familiar to me going up. Okay. Sometimes the van, because so you grew up in what borough? I grew up in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the van doesn't, all right, I thought it was Manhattan, because the van sometimes goes through Manhattan and through Harlem and other areas before it gets onto the main highway heads and heading upstate. So some people get to see their old haunts, but they don't, it doesn't go through Brooklyn. That's true. So going up here, I still stayed to myself because I don't. I didn't like people at that time. I stayed to mm-hmm. myself. And when we got all the way up there, we stopped at Ramapo for mm-hmm. a bathroom break. We got further and further up. They was like, okay, as of right now, there will be no more talking. I'm like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> So we was quiet. We didn't say nothing else. We all sitting up there terrified. And when we got up there, we got out the van. They told us, you know, single file, nobody still speak, walk in and um, sit in the front area. We did that. We got upstairs. We walked upstairs, and you got all of these here people sitting up there just looking at you. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are they looking at? You know, I know I was strange looking because I had yellow yellow dreadlocks, actually yellow dreadlocks. So I knew I was strange, but then we had to, like, sit up in the front area, and people were coming up to you just looking at you and walking by and very busy. So um, I was asked to go to the bathroom. They let me go to the bathroom. While I'm in the bathroom, the girl comes in, and she wants to know, Tony, this lady name was Tony, was my hair real? And she went to touch it, and I was like, if you put your hands on me, you will lose them. So she went back out. She came back in, and she said, well, he told me I had to feel to see was your hair real. And I want to know, well, who told you that? Tell him to come look at it. And of all people, it was Alan Benjamin. <laughs> and Alan Benjamin said, is that a part of your religion? I was like, no. Why? So he explained to me that dreadlocks had a meaning and it had a beautiful meaning, and I had to explain to him why I had yellow hair. And I mm-hmm. told him I went to cop today, and they was letting me see white people leave early, and I wanted to know why did I have to wait and they could leave. And the dealer said, because they're very noticeable, and we're not going to get arrested because the cops see them standing up there. So after I copped and I'm on my way home, I said, well, how can I make myself noticeable? get my drugs real quick and leave. And it just popped in my head to dye my hair yellow. And mm. that's what I did. Never had to stand on the line again. Mm-hmm. And Alan told me it had to come out. It had to be out. I went up December the 12th. He gave me until February the 21st to get this stuff out of my hair. And being mean as I was, I picked it out one by one. I got it out. So they had a diet and everything. Then we went, but that's going a let little me, forward. Then we had to go me, through this ask, thing. Let me ask you a question just in reference to Alan Benjamin. At some mm-hmm. point, did you find did you find out that he he also came into Daytop with um, dreadlocks? Yes. 
Okay. And that just All made right. me dislike him even more because I thought now okay. he was jealous. Because <laughs> um, I had to clean his office, so I saw up there with his pictures of his dreadlocks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to go through this here interview where you had to beg your way to be into treatment. So they took me in there, and I couldn't cry. And one of the people that was doing my interview happened to also have been a person that used to sell me drugs. And she told them, you know, what I was to her. And they said, well, maybe you can be a better influence on her. But they tried and tried. I couldn't cry. I thought I was going I was happy because I thought they was going to make me get out. Mm-hmm. But another counselor, Paul Cutlin, said, this woman is so emotionally and mentally abused, she don't have no tears. He gave me a hug and said, welcome to the family. And that's how I got into far, into um, Parkville. So just for uh, Mr. Producer. Yes, sir. Just for editorial note. Um, okay. I, tra- I trained Paul Cullen. Um, you did? Yes. Oh, my God. Um, so what I would have done is I would have sent you out of the room, and I would have reorientated the interview panel Okay. to, to, to say basically what Paul eventually stated, but with, with that information would have then refocused the interview to kind of and maybe they did this, I don't know, to get you to tell your story a little bit. I don't think I told my story that day. Okay. No, they welcomed me to the family, mm-hmm. um, took me to the dining room, and introduced me to the, to the family. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the next day I found out of all people, Alan Benjamin was my counselor. <laughs> we used to go at it. Oh, my God. I have the highest of respect for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the chair many a days. He put me on the chair because this lady told that I had been raped as a child. And when I was in our feelings, I thought that that was between me and her. Mm-hmm. But then Alan called me to his office and wanted to know why didn't I tell him that when he interviewed me to do my mm-hmm. treatment plan. And I'm like, because it wasn't your business. But the whole matter was that I was very um, ashamed of it. And I didn't mm-hmm. feel like a man should do nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he put me on the chair because I threatened to hurt the art feelings person. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know why was I just so mean. That's uh, just who I am. He says, no, it's not who you are. Our static group, he told them to don't give me no breaks because I use to hurt people and push people away by hurting their feelings and being just nasty. And most people went for it mm-hmm. and didn't bother me. And he put a stop to that. Mm-hmm. Great counselor. Oh, my God. I was blessed to have every great counselor Daytop had in Parksville. Even from, they sent me to school. Um, I got to be a nurse's assistant. Um, I was always thinking, always thinking after I found out I wasn't in, you know, danger or trouble or nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Um, To back up a little bit, it was Christmas. 
And the girl that drove us up there, she told me that she was um, taking a van back up there when she saw my daughter outside crying and stuff. She said, well, you can ask um, the director, Alan, the assistant director, Alan, if your daughter can come up for Christmas to visit you. So now I'm happy because I'm going to get a chance to see my child. Mm-hmm. When I went and asked Alan, he told me no. I was like, are you are you crazy? I can't see my daughter? He said, these people have been here for months. They've earned the right. You haven't earned anything to get anything. I walked outside. I looked up at the sky, and I cried. And I said, nobody in life will ever again tell me when I can see my child. Mm-hmm. That's when treatment are kicking in, when he told me I couldn't see my baby. Um, I was a thief, a good thief. Real good thief. So, the Christmas time when everybody was going shopping and stuff, and they was gonna let us go shopping, I went upstairs and I got dressed up to go. Alan called me in the office. Him and Kim. Kim thought I looked really, really nice. Alan said, "You're not gonna embarrass us up here." So Kim said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "She's dressed to steal. She's a thief." So she wanted to know how did he know that? He said, "Because people are gonna be looking at her clothes and not her." And she'll be stealing. And if she get caught, Daytop Parksville will be highly embarrassed. So now he's going to put me in bloom clothes. I couldn't even wear my own clothes no more. <laughs> and everything he did, he explained to me. He said, you're very, you dress real nice on the outside. He said, but your insides is so hurt and messed up. Mm-hmm. So you need to dress down in order to fix what's going on on the inside. They took my jewelry. I couldn't wear jewelry or anything um, when my children was. And then I was still mean, too, because when my kids did send me a card or a gift or something, I wouldn't take it just to be mean. So I'm right back up in the deal again. You know, why are you just so mean? Why do you keep fighting the process? So eventually I just gave in, and um, I earned different things. Well, let me let me um, ask you this question. I'm going to ask you a question, mm-hmm. and then I also – we have another guest on the line that I also want to bring in. But let me ask you this. Okay. At that moment, at that moment when you kind of gave in, was that like a weight-off-your-shoulder moment? It was a peaceful – like everything just dropped. Like your shoulders was all stiff and everything. It's mm-hmm. like you just dropped and you just fell free, and life began to change. Right. Okay, I'm going to hold you right there. Um, we have another guest on the line. Miss um, Crystal, are you there? Yes, hi, I'm here. Hi, welcome to Roach on Recovery. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So um, we were just hearing from Miss Catherine. Um, we started her out with just telling us a little bit about her story prior to um, who she was prior to treatment. Um, and a little bit of her life in the early stages of treatment. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of that about yourself? Um, who was Crystal before treatment and a little bit of what you were like in the in the very early parts of the treatment experience for you? Okay. The Crystal during use was young and crazy. Uh, my mother got killed when I was 16. I started using drugs when I was 19, and um, I had a kid 
I had a kid almost every other year for, I have six kids. Um, I was just lost, running around, didn't know my head from my elbow, you know, trying to find love in the street. And, you know, from a man, that was my downfall, a man. Then I got into treatment. When I got into treatment, I wasn't ready. But they told me that if I didn't do treatment, they were going to take my last child. And I refused for them to take my last child. So, you know, I stuck and I stayed. And actually, Catherine was my counselor. Well, let, me, let me back you up a little bit. How, how was the treatment option presented to you and where? Who, who presented that option to you? Uh, social worker, caseworker. Okay. ACS okay. caseworker told me that if I didn't get my stuff together, they would take my child from me. Okay. And um, I had already had five of my kids taken from me. Okay. And, and so, this, so she, she recommended Daytop? No, I I just I walked around the corner and I seen Daytop and I said I'm going in here. And oh, okay. That's what I did. Okay. And um, so you you walked into an outreach. Yes. Okay. And um, because I had tried treatment before, but mm-hmm. it it just didn't seem like it worked for me because. That's not what I wanted to do. I continue. I really wanted to continue using, mm-hmm. but it was so different when I had. Okay, I had five boys before this last baby, and the last baby was a girl, and it seemed like it just changed everything about me. You know, so when I went into treatment, Catherine took me under her wing. She wasn't actually. She wasn't even my counselor. I had another counselor, mm-hmm. but I always went to Catherine. You know, because it was like she, my other counselor sugarcoated a lot of stuff for me, but Catherine gave it to me the way I needed to hear it. You know, and she also loved me. You know, she loved me out of my mat. You know, I, it was like she became my mother, but my counselor because she never let me get over with anything. And um, I'm very grateful to her. I'm so grateful because I was I was lost. I was totally lost. Like I didn't, I had family, but I didn't have family that knew about this disease. Everybody in my family are alcoholics. I smoked crack, so they looked at me like I was an alien. Instead of like we both have a disease, all of us have a disease. Well, I don't know if you, uh, and I'm saying this to both Catherine and Crystal, if you guys re- uh, recognize this when you were in treatment, that there was this interesting dynamic that used to play out sometimes that the heroin addicts would look at the crack addicts one way and the cocaine addicts one way and the alcoholics would look at everybody one way as if either one of them were better than the other. Yes. Not realizing yes. every everyone is sitting in the same dining room. 
Right. So right, eating the same food, getting the same treatment. Right. Catherine, how does it feel to hear, um, you know, once you, you know, went through your personal experience of your own treatment and, you know, you went on and, you know, became a counselor and to hear uh, someone who you counseled and advised um, talk about the impact that you had on them? Um, I admire Crystal a great deal. But she really worked for everything she got. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm who I am because of Maxine Thomas, Kim Coverton. So in other words, the woman that they made me, I wanted to make other women that, mm-hmm. the same way. I knew that it could work. I knew how people looked down on me, how my daughter would call up there, got in a fight because somebody said, oh, I miss your mother. We used to shoot dope together. I didn't want that for her daughter. I've met Crystal Children. Um, like I said, she's a beautiful young woman, beautiful. She done got college degrees and still going to school, volunteering and all of that stuff. She's even came and did groups for me. I think that this is man, like you all say, man help man to help himself. That's mm-hmm. the type of person she is. And in order for me to be able to do it, somebody had to teach me. Mhm. Yes, yeah, she taught her. me well. Like, like she said, I just, I just graduated with my degree in psychology. Now I'm graduating with my second degree in sociology. I have all my kids back in my life, and I volunteer at JCAP Drug Treatment Program. I volunteer twice a week. You know, I. She taught me to give back what was so freely given to me, and that's what I do. And she's become one of my friends. Well, first of all, I'm kind of speechless, Crystal, about what you just said, uh, because if you think about where you were and Mm -hmm. where you are and how many people from where you were, can't even, you know, imagine that. And you've actually not only had in some way, shape, or form were able to imagine that, dream that, think of it, but you actually did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's something. I mean, that to, <laughs> to me, that's what Daytop is about. That's what Daytop was about. And I did it after two strokes. That's right. Wow. I got clean and got, I had a stroke. Then I had another stroke. Well, we wouldn't know if you... Yes, we wouldn't know if you didn't tell us. Miss Catherine, let me ask you this. Um, you, you went into the uh, staff training program? Yes, I did. Um, oh, also training to be a counselor too. She left say that it out. again. Oh yeah, Crystal's also training to be a counselor. Okay, Miss Catherine, when yes, you so. when Go you w- walk us through, if you can quickly, when did you decide that hey, this is something you wanted to do, and what was the experience like for you going through the training program? 
um, when I was upstate, they sent me to be a nurse's aide. When I mm-hmm. came downstate, Henry Kirschman called me and said, now it's time for you to be a counselor. I had no idea that I wanted to be a counselor. Henry Kirschman advised me to be a counselor. Um, going through the training process, Richie Falzone, um, Tony Gilomino, Wilbur Powell, Maxine, and Frank trained me to be a counselor. I was in training to be a counselor for a year and a half to make sure that I knew what I was going to be doing. They sent me to ACS training. It wasn't nothing that they did not believe I could do. They mm-hmm. helped me get my GED and everything. So it was it was just I've never received so much love in my life. And I guess that's what made me blossom, the love that I received from Daytop, from people that was, oh, my God, had so many years drug-free. Why would you even think about helping me? Mm-hmm. It was just a great experience. I received an award um, of excellence for going through the Daytop training to be a counselor training mm-hmm. other interns also be um, counselors. I had a great experience with daytime. Great. Even me and you and, you know, the co-hosts. Great experiences. Mm-hmm. So right you now men- I'm retired from daytime. Well, you mentioned a number of uh, names, of some very important names. Uh, so, um, Mr. Producer, you still there? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Want to make sure you didn't fall asleep at the switchboard. Absolutely not. Now. I'm loving every minute of this. This okay. is uh, really inspiring stories right here. Okay. So some of the names that she mentioned, um, basically she got trained by the best of the best. Um, you know, and like her, I'm grateful for being trained by the best of the best. But we need to make another editor's note, Henry Kirschman. I did his initial interview coming into Daytop. What? How old are yeah. you? I was, I, I, <laughs> and you look like you you look like you in your thirties. You really, you know, up there. Not as old no, as me, yeah. but Well, first 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 of all, I was actually one of the, the young younger people in treatment at the time. I I went into treatment at twenty four and a half years old. Wow. So it was me and maybe four or five other guys. Most everyone else was pretty much over 30, but I'm 53. So, but uh, Henry came in with his long hair, rock and roll <laughs> hair, and all that stuff. <clears throat> but I did his initial interview, and he became an excellent, excellent uh, counselor and much more. So, um, so a lot of the names. Oh. I, I like it when we get moles on the inside. <laughs> yes, he's good. Wonderful. So, Miss uh, Crystal. Yes. Um. You you. You've become. All right, so, are you said you have a master's now in psychology and a master's in social work? No, I have a. I have both degrees, a bachelor's degrees in psychology, and. Psychology and sociology. Oh, and sociology. Okay. And I'm going okay. to be training for my case pack team. Oh, okay. Okay. So, Catherine, even though you have uh, 
retired from uh, giving formal counsel to uh, to addicts and those in need. Uh, Ms. Crystal is going to continue um, formally spreading spreading the wor- the wealth and spreading the good word um, of recovery. Um, are both of you aware of the the dynamic of the new? My hands are in quotes because there's always a new. Every you know every generation is a new. The new addict that's out there to deal with today. No. Uh, the, the 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 new addict that I know is the pill, the opiate addict. Now that's mostly what I see now. So, when we talk about the new addict, we don't actually talk about the drug that they may be using. The drugs may be mm-hmm. different, or they may be new drugs, um, etc. But we've done a couple of shows on this, and Mr. Producer, you can speak to this a little bit. One of the things that we've noticed, and and it's mostly with the millennials, okay? Um, Okay. Unlike us, uh, and and it's not an us versus them, it's just an observation of reality. Um, Most of us enter treatment at a time, and at some point in time, we're – you know, whether we were entered by force, meaning like, you know, you got, you got to go or else, or you just, you, you, you came to your own knowing inside need to go. Um, but at some point as what happened with you, Miss Catherine, you submitted and then the process started the new at the new addict walks in with a sense of entitlement and, and believes that the treatment program owes them something versus, you know, what are you going to do to, you know, turn your life around versus, you know, what are we going to do to turn your life around? And we can, we can say that with confidence because we're dealing with them, obviously. Um, but we were painting, a, I said the millennials, so I'm kind of painting a broad brush of, 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 of that generation because that's what we're experiencing. Mr. Producer? I completely agree, yeah. Um, many of the stories that I hear from, from old Daytop graduates are full of gratitude from the client's perspective. Now, throughout treatment, you know, there may be some ups and downs, and, and clients may have challenged things from time to time. But the overwhelming feeling that I'm left with in hearing a lot of these stories and how clients, you know, approached treatment back in the day was with a lot of gratitude because it, it wasn't a figure of speech. We weren't speaking figuratively back then when we said that people would literally kill for the bed that you had. There were literally people dying in the streets, um, you know, and you had this opportunity that other people didn't have, and if you weren't grateful for it, uh, you know, that wasn't the approach to take. And so the, the overwhelming feeling I'm left with is that a lot of these old Daytop graduates, you know, met, met their treatment and greeted their treatment with the utmost gratitude, uh, which is definitely different from today's generation, like the host pointed out, where uh, we are met with clients that are more quick to ask us, what do we have for them versus, uh, you know, give me anything you got. And so there's definitely a little more entitlement there for sure. Um, I would like to add, you know, maybe a side note, um, in working with the adult population, which 
our Common Ground only services now, um, but is still relatively new to me because the majority of my experience in this field has been with an adolescent population. I felt the entitlement a lot more with the adolescents than I do with the adults. Uh, not that it's not still present, but I don't feel it to be as strong as it was when we were working with the adolescents. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, um, Mr. Host, but um, that is that is my perspective anyway. Well, what I'd like to ask our two guests, um, since um, Ms. Jackson recommended this show um, in celebration of Women's History Month, and one of the things that I was talking about in my um, preamble was about how women just historically were underrepresented in treatment. Um, Ms. Catherine, how many women did Parksville hold? I know Swan Lake held 90. How many did Parksville hold? I'm sorry, Parks, Park, well, Swan Lake well, held 60. How many did? I would say a good 60, maybe 65, because we had a population oh. of 210. Okay. Um, and did you notice, as I, I noticed that, um, I mean, obviously there's a reason why there were so many, so, so much fewer female beds, but what, what are your thoughts on that as you went through, became a counselor and, and, and worked closely with the women in terms of that, how much they were underrepresented in, in treatment? I don't think they understood that even though we use drugs, we still had that mother thing in us. Mm-hmm. Wherein what's going to happen to my children? What's going to happen to my home? And the biggest thing for women is not having somewhere to come back home to. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you put me in treatment, but you're not guaranteeing me a home. You taking my children, and my children are being abused in foster care. Mm-hmm. So what are you really doing? To, what are you really doing for me? It's a lot of changes that has to be made. A lot of changes where women are concerned. Um, women don't get, I'm not going to, I am going to say it. I don't think being an addict, and my son made me realize this, a woman that's on drugs don't get the same respect as a man. And the reason for that is because children are put, children put the woman on a pedestal, not realizing that we're human too. We go through stuff too. We need to be allowed to be able to grieve. They they talk about how strong women is. We cry by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in treatment and something happening and going into the room crying by myself. That's the most painful feeling in the world is to cry alone. Mm-hmm. So I think that everything needs to, like, just take a chance and talk to women, find out from women, ask them, what do you need? How can I help you? What benefits are you going to receive by staying here? You can't guarantee me nothing. And that's the first thing we need to do is be honest with one another. I can't guarantee you're going to have an apartment when you leave here, but I can guarantee you, like Crystal said, you will get your children back. And if the system don't give them back, your children going to come back because they love you anyway. So learn about women. I think even though y'all are men, y'all need to know that a, a child is going to love their mother no matter what. If a mother beat mm-hmm. them to death, they're going to still love their mother. But mm-hmm. how do you know that if you don't ask the woman to teach you? Learn. Don't be afraid to say, well, show me. You got daughters. You got a wife. They straight. They good. 
Look at them, ask them questions from being straight. Then talk to the women that are using. And if you put the two things together, they may say it, say it differently, but they only want the same thing, to be loved and respected and treated kindly. Learn about a woman being raped. <coughs> That's a big issue. That's an issue that stay with you the rest of your life. I mean, when when Alan found out I was raped, and I questioned Alan on, because I, 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 I want to help. Mm-hmm. Why is it I ain't playing games? Why don't I play games? Why ain't nobody a, saying nothing to me? They had to go all the way to Springwood to bring over Donna Tory to explain to me that you're not playing games because of your rape and because you had a hysterectomy. You don't have those same kind of feelings no more. And if I wasn't told, I would have never knew. The biggest thing is to get us to trust y'all, enough to tell y'all everything. And if you're looking down on me, how can I trust you? So you want to know what we used to do uh, at Swan Lake to try and help that process along? One of the things, we knew women came in with tremendous amount of trauma. And so a lot of the trauma... Other than the self-inflicted trauma, there was trauma forced, you know, fostered upon them, and a lot of it was by men. And so one of the things we would do is if during the course of life in the TC, if if a male disrespected a female, we would put that male in the center of a room on a swivel chair surrounded by 14 to 15 women, and we would pick 14 to 15 women who we knew had a significant amount of issues they were dealing with regarding men and let them just vent on that one young man. All we were doing at that time was just release, allowing him to release energy. That's it. Right. If, if they weren't you know, getting into the issue, but it was just an opportunity to release the energy and just vent it towards one person even though this person probably had nothing to do with anything that they were going through. But one of the things I used to try and challenge the females to do was you guys are 60 strong. There's 190 men. Okay. You should be like a, a a lion pride of, 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 of women. And this is the same story I used to my two daughters. There's only two reasons why the male lion comes around the female lions. That's for food, because they don't hunt, and to mate. I said, so if a man approaches you in the treatment environment, make the connection. What is he approaching you for? Doesn't mean he doesn't have noble or honorable intentions, but your antennas should be up. And if one of you, one of you, if you see one of the, the women you know, being poached out of the pride by a male that's going after her, all of y'all should encircle her to give the message, no, you're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Even though she's weak right now, we're going to encircle her and engulf her so that you can't get to her. And we only, for the longest time, we've, we've only, at the adult facility, we only had 12 beds for, for females. We're now down to eight. And it was so hard to get 12 women to come together and I don't care if you'll argue and fight and 
you know, claw and do whatever behind closed doors. But when y'all come on the floor, no one should be able to penetrate that little circle. That's right. But see, you have to also remember, growing up as a child, I don't know about Crystal, but I was taught not to trust women. So I don't know if it's still going on. And and then I believe it still is. It because is. you have women putting each other down instead of building them up. Yep. Instead of, you know, like the um, one of my neighbors, she's young. She got a baby. She can't. She on welfare. She ain't got no pampers. She ain't got this. She ain't got that. So why you going to call ACS on her when it's so easy to go out and buy her some diapers? Teach her how to wash them. Put, instead of her having wipes, show her how to put a wet rag in a plastic bag. No, you want to call ACS on it and have her children taken from you. Women don't stick together. And the reason for that is because way back when we were taught not to trust one another. And as Crystal said, still go back to men because the first thing come out your mouth is, and I was taught by my mother, oh, well, she, you, you, you talking to her, she giving you your, your, your boyfriend her number under the table, so how can you trust somebody like that? Mhm. It's a lot of work that women have to do and can do together. The same kind of relationship I have with Crystal, Patricia, and we have with one another. All women can do it, but it has mm-hmm. to be taught. It's a process. It's a process. It is a it is a process. They have to be willing to go through that process and and in the daytop way, be willing to be brutally honest with each other. Right. That's true. That's true. The only way you can be a friend is to be a friend. And I tell Crystal and anybody else, don't allow people to choose you to be their friend. You choose people on the level that you feel you on. Don't look down on nobody. But if they're not where or trying to get where you're at, then you don't need them in your life. And you accept somebody for who they are. If you know she's a thief and you made her your friend, you got to accept her being a thief. Mm-hmm. You chose her like that. You can't change her. How y'all dealing with? Can I ask you a question? Sure. How are y'all dealing with the new set of women? It is a challenge. It's a double challenge for me. Personally, because once my daughters became came of age, and became at the, and as Chris had mentioned, our Mr. Producer Mr. Producer mentioned we used to have an adolescent program also, and my daughters grew up in that program. They were there since they were toddlers running around, and when they became you know 15, 16, and 17, and were hanging out. It was a total different dynamic because now they were the same age as the girls in the program. Right. Mm. And one the one time they asked me, they said because they would talk to the girls in the program, and they said, "You know, I've I, does your dad ever raise his voice? Because I've never heard him yell here." And they 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 laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, yeah, I've heard him raise his voice. I said, well, we've never heard him yell or raise his voice. I had to explain to my daughters, I said, listen, <clears throat> I have an emotional connection with you two, and you two are worth me getting a headache. 
So mm. if I yell at you or raise my voice, it, I, it's you're worth me doing that and getting a headache. It's not that I don't right. care about them. It's not that I don't have love for the clients, okay? But I don't have, I don't have, and I should not have an emotional connection to them. Right. Okay, because then I can't be objective in helping them. Right. Right. And this no more proved itself than with my oldest child when she ran into difficulties in high school. <clears throat> and there was a time, a period of time, where I was being unsuccessful in helping her. And it clicked in my mind why. Because it was Orville, the counselor, Orville, the program person, trying to help her rather than Orville, the father. That's once sweet. that cl- once that clicked in my mind, everything changed. That's how Maxine taught me to separate. She taught me it's her story, not yours. And Wilbur Power taught me to be human by saying, there's no such thing as leaving your problems at home. Wherever you go, you take yourself with you. <laughs> at the end well, of the day, you ask yourself, at the end of the day, ask yourself, could I have did something differently? And if you could have did it differently, then you go back and do it differently. If you feel you hurt somebody's feelings, don't be too big to go back and say, I'm sorry. I, I laugh at what you said. I laugh at what you said because one of my favorite sayings to clients over the years has always been, you follow you wherever you go. So if you think that when if you if you think that when you if you're going to leave this program and that your problems are going to stay here in the facility, you're sadly mistaken. They're just following you out the door with you. That's true. I think today Crystal just realized her daughter is a young lady. Oh, the doctor wanted Crystal to leave. The doctor wanted Crystal to leave the room, and she never experienced that before. Because she How turned thirteen on the seventeenth of February. She turned thirteen, so mm-hmm. they said that she's a teenager that I had to leave the room. And like, I have a close relationship with my daughter, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, I'm not leaving the room. But then they was like, you know, explaining this is the law. And I'm, oh, my gosh, it was just something totally different. But I said that that you've changed. It's never too late to learn something. You know, she didn't take it in a negative way, Mm -hmm. but it was something for her to think about. I got Mm -hmm. to treat her differently now. Right. I got to be more trusting of other people around her. Mm -hmm. You, You know, as women, we continually learn. And we're going to keep on learning until we get it right. Right. And, you know, and and, and part of that women issue, like I see it every day, like I say, because I volunteer. And I try to teach the sisters, y'all are sisters, and you need to build each other up instead of tear each other down or just turn your head when you see one of your sisters going through something because the sisters help you get through this program, you know, because your brothers, they're not, not all of them, but a lot of them are looking at you in a totally different way, not trying to help you through treatment. They're trying to get their own kind of treatment, you know, and I explain that to them every day I talk to them, you know, and I don't know. 
because let me tell you something. With me, I found something to, to, to stick with, and we stick, we stuck, and we stayed together. Let me let me say this. Um, I I always ask myself why I'm I'm more sensitive to this issue, and I don't know if it's because I've raised only daughters. I don't have any sons, so that may be the reason. Um, and as I was saying, Miss um, Catherine earlier when I first came on. I have a mother. I have three sisters. Um, nothing but women in my house. My wife and my two girls, and just discounting the two grandboys, they're still they're, they're still under the bosoms of the women right now. So I, I haven't been able to snatch them out yet. Uh, but that's okay. But um, you asked about the challenge. Yes, it's a challenge today, just like in yesteryear, to get the women to. Um, support each other and to look out for each other. Um, oftentimes they come in and we ask them, I, I ask a, a question, you know, about, you know, are you involved in a relationship outside? No. Okay. And we tell them about the rules and I said, well, look, I'm not interested in any man in here is what they say. And, and, and a guy will also say the same thing. I'm not interested in any girls in here, but and I say, I said, let me tell you something. First of all, I've heard that before. Second of all, when you say, well, there's no one in here that I find, you know, attractive or whatever, I said, really? I said, I guarantee you after four months, someone that you thought was ugly looks like a runway model, okay? So trust me, we've heard it all. So one of the things that we try and do, and we thought that it would be easier because we have a small number of women, but as you stated, Ms. Catherine, that yes, even today – it's still being taught somewhere. They're experiencing it somewhere not to trust other women because it's so hard. I have sat with a group of eight in the pantry, okay, just us in the pantry, asking them, can you guys please be like a pride of female lions? Fight amongst yourselves. Do what you got to do amongst yourselves. But when you come out of that female dorm, it is one for all and all for one. No guy can um, penetrate. Because I guarantee you, when you come out the female dorm, and this is just a reality because, you know, the population reflects society. There are guys that are in treatment that can spot the weak one, okay, the one who obviously doesn't feel good about herself. They for whatever reason, they can just spot it, okay, right. and will attempt to poach you out of the pride. I said, and you all have got to, you know, put your arms out around and, and, and protect each other. Everyone's going to have a weak moment, so everyone's got to pick each other up. So, yeah, it's a challenge to get them to do that, but obviously we're never going to give up on that. Um, right. Because there's just so, few, just, just so few women that make it into treatment. That's for true. many different reasons. Yes. I think the first thing to teach them is self-confidence. Build their self-esteem. If you can build their self-esteem, find out what their weakness is, then you can make that powerful woman. Make that woman um, realize that sometimes you got to be able to stand alone. Everybody is not going to like you. And if she can understand that and and internalize that, she'll be all right. But she's and you know where you get the most learning from? 
all of y'all think it's from a woman. No, it's from a man. I I learned to trust men because of Alan Benjamin. Mm-hmm. He was the first man that did so much for me and never wanted anything in return. Mm-hmm. So automatically, I'm trusting him because he ain't doing nothing but teaching me, showing me the right way. And once, and every man, every girl wants to be a daddy's baby. I'm not saying Alan Benjamin was my daddy. But he was the big brother. I never had a brother that I could trust, a brother right. that I could talk to, you know. So I think that everybody thinks women can help women. I think the biggest thing they did, the best thing they ever did for me was put me on Alan Benjamin's caseload instead of Kim. Because mm-hmm. out of Kim, a woman's perspective, from Alan, I learned both perspectives, how a man going to look at me and how I should look back at him. And then you're going to have to be the type of man that if when I went to Alan Benjamin about a hysterectomy, he didn't know nothing about that. He had to be strong enough, big big enough to say, well, I need to go outside of myself and ask somebody else to help him. Mm-hmm. It's a whole lot, man. It's not a joke. So one thing we used to do, just in wrapping this up, And it doesn't happen very often because it requires a lot of growth and maturity to do it. Is Mm -hmm. we, I experienced this at Swan Lake. I saw it happen when I, in my short time at Parksville, I've seen it happen in our facility on occasion over the years here. When you talked about women learning from men, men learning from women, one of the biggest areas of growth is when what we ask the guys to look at is all of you have said that you had issues in your relationships with women whatever they were domestic violence bad relationships whatever okay if you have the maturity and the growth where else can you go to learn, or whatever the issue is? Some guys, well, I don't know how to talk to women. Then you can go to one of the women in the house, if you have the maturity in the growth, and ask them, hey, this is what I've done in the past. Tell me what's wrong with it, what's right with it, what should I do differently, what should I do better, or what have you. I said, but that requires a lot of maturity and responsibility to be able to do that on both, on both sides. And I've seen it happen, and I've seen it work beautifully. But it's very sparingly because, obviously, not everybody's mature enough, not everybody's responsible enough, and sometimes people have different agendas. But it's but a beautiful that, thing when it happens. Treatment's not as long as it used to be. So exactly. So being the yep. counselor, you can't, or being the director, you don't have time to pick out who you can trust as a male. Right. Because I think now crystal treatment is like three months. It's six to nine months now. That's it. Okay. And how much is residential? Residential is six to nine months. Outpatient, I think, is three to six months. Wow. Residential is... the same for y'all two levels? No. the same up there? No. We've been... Our residential has been reduced to just 90 days, but then the outpatient and we ha- we have a supportive housing unit where people who are in outpatient can stay 
while they're doing their outpatients or they're still housed. Um, so it's almost like still they're in the re- residential environment. Um, so they can stay there for as long as 12 months, but the traditional residential environment is only 90 months, um, 90, 90 days. Wow. What can you learn in 90 days? You're wow. at the three month days. mark. You're just, you're just, you know, yeah. biologically, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, just getting to the point of cleansing your body and, and getting refreshed. Right. Trying to catch up and figuring out who you are. Trying to figure exactly. out who you are by, by 90 days. You're just realizing what color do you like and what do <laughs> you like. And, you know, looking at your skin and realizing that, so that, your skin, that, you're, that you're light skin and you're not dark skin. You know, yeah, you just, you know, finally getting to look in the mirror and like what you see. 90 days. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. We, we call that the... Uh, the the first, the first trimester of treatment, and you know, I mean, in 90 days, your, you know, your sleep patterns are just returning to normal, and you're starting to eat normally again and whatnot. So, right. um, mm-hmm. it's a big, it's a big change for us. It's a big change for us. Well, I greatly right. enjoyed the show as always. Well, we are uh, grateful and certainly appreciative. Um, to have you, Miss Catherine, and you, Miss Crystal, on to talk about your experiences. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for being so open with us. I, I thank you so much because, like, this is like an honor for me to be even asked to do something like this because, like, I look at myself and I and I see the growth, but it's just like a I can't really explain it, but I'm really honored. I'm really honored, and I thank you guys. Well, it's the, the honor is ours. As long as you, it's called being grateful, Crystal, and as long as you got that little girl inside of you, you're going to do well. I, I am. I'm truly grateful. Like, I got tears running down my face because I'm truly grateful, like truly, truly grateful. Everybody come on your show, Oval. You may cry. The first time I was on there, I cried. <laughs> Shame on y'all. <laughs> it's a, it's a uh, gift. I ha- it's a gift. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So, Miss Catherine, Miss Crystal, so we're going we're gonna to put you both on hold. You can continue to listen to the rest of the show. we got about almost 30 minutes left, Mr. Producer. Am I correct, based on the time? That is correct, mm-hmm. sir. We're going to. We're going to take a short break, music break, and then we're going to come back and we're going to take some calls from some folks, okay? Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so Thank much. Mr. Producer? Yes, sir. It's all yours. All right. Uh, we do see that we have some callers on hold. We appreciate the uh, the patience that you've shown, some people that want to participate in the recovery segment. We uh, will get to everybody after a short commercial break on the other side.
up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. 
Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Back to Roadshow Recovery. Uh, we're going to go straight to the phones, Mr. Producer. I'm going to tell you, you what, if there wasn't a solid delay on that button, I would have cut you off just the way I wanted to. I know you did that purposely. All right, let's go to uh, Marvin, who's been holding a while from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good. How can we help you, sir? All right, my question is this. Um, so I'm just out of jail. I'm in my first program on my seventh day. My question is, uh, will my internal struggle get easier? It's on the seven days I've been out, and, I, and for seven days now I've been thinking about leaving. Well, that's that's normal. That's a normal thing? That's a normal thing. The question is, are your feelings going to continue to dictate your behavior? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that. I'm trying to not let them get, get to me. Because <clears throat> my okay, feelings so, so far, I haven't, I haven't been... Uh, Obviously, I've made the wrong choices, so. So the only persons on the face of the earth that are allowed to use the excuse of their feelings dictating their behaviors are toddlers. Just want to put it in context. So the challenge for those of you going into recovery for the first time or making another attempt is can I allow my feelings to feel but they not dictate what I do? So I started so I, off by saying to you I started off by saying to you that what you're feeling is normal. It's <clears throat> normal. 
The question is, is it going to dictate what you do? Uh, I guess I shouldn't let it, right? I feel I should just grow up and, and get with this. <clears throat> you just got to let the feeling pass. This is where the mind comes in to overpower what you're feeling and trying to cause you to make a decision that's not in your best interest. Your brain has to say, nope, this is where I need to be. This is what I need to be doing to get my act together, to get my life back on the right track. And as time moves on, okay, that, those feelings will dissipate because you'll become more and more focused on what you're doing in recovery, what you're doing in your program, rather than what's going on outside and whatever is pulling you and whatever is, you know, you know, trying to drag you out. No, yeah, not the only thing dragging I have nothing out there. The only thing dragging me out is, is one to get, get high. Well, that's a thing. That's a thing. That's a thing. Okay, I don't, have any posi- I don't have any positive things out there, how about I should say. So, okay. Except the, but the program being my, I guess that would be my positive thing, correct? Correct. All right. So you, you have advice for me? Like, is there anything that I should do to, um, to, to ease my struggle? Yeah, just what you just did. You see how you, 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 you talked about, you articulated, hey, this is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling like I want to I, I leave this program that I'm in. Okay, so you need to share that and talk about that with other people so they can give you feedback and give you, give you consult on, hey, that's okay. That's normal for you to feel like that after seven days. But just take it one day at a time and just make sure that you hang in there. And before you know it, 30 days have gone by. And before you know it, you're no longer thinking and focused on on leaving and, and thinking about the drugs that are out there. You're focused on what you're doing in terms of your recovery. So the focus slowly changes and shifts. But you have to allow time for that process. So those first 30 days are a marker. It's a hard, it's a difficult time. That's, pretty, that's what I was asking. Thank you. I was wondering, like, like I should struggle for 30, huh? Give it at least 30 is what I'm asking. Well, no, I want you to, I want you to give it as long as it takes for you to, because right. your, your life is very important. So whether it takes 30, whether it takes 60, whether it takes 900, it doesn't matter. Your life is worth whatever it takes. I'm just giving you as an example, like a marker to think about that, you know what, what I'm experiencing and what I'm feeling is normal. I'm going to feel this way until, you know, my mind starts focusing on different things. And the easiest way to speed that process up is to make sure that you become involved in whatever program that you're in and focus on those things. And then you will slowly notice that, wow, I'm not even thinking about drugs out there. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm doing in the program. Keeping my head inside the house. Exactly. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I just want to thank you for your advice, and I'm going to take you up on that. Okay. Stick You're it welcome, out and, uh, and, and, and keep it going. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right. Bye. That first trimester is hard. And that first 30 yeah, days. Yeah, we've of that talked first... about that a lot. But what I do appreciate about 
Marvin from San Francisco is the honesty. Yep. Uh, you know, putting it on the table. I've been here seven days, and the only thing that's pulling me for, you know, wanting to leave is wanting to get high. I'm not so sure that others would either A, share that, or B, even have that insight, like to put a finger on it. The, the overwhelming yep. feeling would just, I don't want to be here. But to be able to identify that as very honest. Yep. All right, let's go to Kamari, also calling from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Hello. Oh, Hello. So I've been sober for 14 months, and I still want to get high. Is that normal? No. Why do you still want to get high? I don't know. I've just been having urges and crazy. All right, all right. And... Let's, let's stop. The first thing you cannot allow, you cannot allow, is to accept I don't know as an answer to yourself. Because what that does is that's automatically take, okay, I'm off the hook. I don't know. And that's not the truth. More often than not, we do know. Now, whether we want to dig deep enough to bring it forth is a different story. Okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Why do you want okay. to still get high? Um, a lot of stress. Um, dealing with like the that's going on with me. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I can escape from my okay. problems. So another way to look at that, this is all just perspective now. That's what you used to do. Yes. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that we're gonna we, we're trying to work on here is changing that instinct that you developed over a period of time of that was the way I would deal with my problems and deal with stress is to go get high is slowly over time changing that instinct to, okay, when I get stressed out or if I have problems in my life, the instinct is not to look to a drug to deal with it, but to use the tools that I've been taught. Okay. Such as talking about them, sharing them, being honest about them, etc. Okay. So to help you with your context so you don't take it too deep in terms of being hard on yourself, okay? The, yeah. Changing that instinct is a process. It takes time. But you have to be aware when you start to th- when you're going through things and your mind shifts to the, your old way of, uh, as an out to deal with them, you have to be able to say, oh, no, wait a second. That's what I used to do. That's what I used to start thinking about when things got hard or when I started going through stuff. I would automatically start thinking about, okay, that's how I'm going to deal with it. You got to be able to recognize it and say, nope, that's not how I'm dealing with it. I'm going to do this. Okay. That's why I said it's very important that you don't accept from yourself because you, you're, you're basically talking to yourself, what, what, what am I going through right now? Why am I thinking about this? Why am I looking to do that? And you can't accept I don't know as the answer. Because what happens after I don't know is, okay, well, F it. You know, I don't know what, what's going on. And since I don't know, I guess I'll just do what I normally do. And that's unacceptable. Yeah. You understand? Yes. 
you got to hold yourself to a higher standard and higher accountability. So I don't know it's unacceptable. And it forces you to dig deeper for the real truth, the real answer, and then deal with that. So you think if I just, if I have some thoughts to talk about it and write it down, get it out of my system? Yes. We all have to do that. Okay. When you experience, when, when you're... When you're going through one of those moments and you start thinking about that negative way of dealing with it, yeah. and then you, you try the other way of talking about it, finding someone that you can share with and, and talk about it with honestly, and then see the impact and how that changes your mind and everything about how you were planning on dealing with it, you've allowed yourself to experience a different way. You've seen the results of a different way. And once you experience and see the, the results of a different way, you say, wow, it does actually work if I, rather than acting off of it, if I talk about how, what I'm going through and how I'm feeling, I don't have to take that route. Okay. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. How many times, Mr. Producer, have we said, I don't know is an unacceptable answer? Uh, countless, countless. Uh, if, if I could keep counting for page, probably even a penny every time I said that, I'd be a rich man. Now, I will say in full disclosure that I have exempted myself from that rule um, as a result of having to raise two daughters and who are now grown and uh, – I have now adopted I don't know as my standard answer um, to many things as a way of right. uh, telling them as – a, as a nice way of telling them to get lost. <laughs> there you go. I will use that when that time comes for me. And, of course, I kid. <laughs> my youngest used to ask me questions like a machine gun, back, back to back to back to back to back to back to back. At a certain uh, point, the, one you had on your hands. Oh, yes. And at a certain point, I would get to the old, I don't know, to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. She laughs about that's, it now. That's pretty good. I, I'm going to keep that one in my back pocket. Sure. Okay. All right. Let's go to Phil from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Uh, howdy. Howdy. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Sorry. Um I just wonder what advice you might have in particular for professionals who are going to be returning to careers after AOD treatment. So the biggest issue that we found that professional folk face is how are they going to be looked at, one. Two, what's it going to be like reintegrating into the professional environment as now a person in recovery? Okay. Um, let me reverse the question to you and ask you, sure. have you started thinking about what that's going to look like for you personally? Yes. Yeah. I, you know, there's, unfortunately in my particular career, there's a lot of socializing and particularly because I work on contract, mm-hmm. there's, I'm sort of always having to sell myself, you know, and both mm-hmm. sort of in a sort of an informal way, <laughs> excuse me, and, and so 
being sort of the pleasant guy on the job kind of, you know, anything that sticks out can be kind of difficult for you professionally in terms of just, mm-hmm. you know, paying the rent. Well, in a professional context, you don't have to share your life story. You know what I'm saying? You you right. maintain your professionalism. Yeah. But in terms of are you concerned about it, what what may present itself in the social environment, like in terms of there being a lot of drinking and, 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 and whatnot? What, what are your concerns? Pretty really? much that, yeah, that's pretty much the scenario. There's a lot of really a socialization. You know, you're going on off-sites and things, uh, company off-sites, and, and a lot of mixing afterwards. And luckily, the particular market segment I'm in, there are a lot, fair number of people who, who don't drink for uh, and I'm mostly talking about alcohol here. Um, right. For you know health reasons, it's it's much more it's a little more natural than it would be in other situations. On the other hand, you know, <laughs> again, anything there's a bit of a Superman complex in my line of work, and anything that sticks as a weakness is is not it's kind of frowned upon. Okay, that has to that what you just mentioned that's perspective, and that has to change in your mind. And once you change that perspective in your mind and say, well, wait a second, I, I view it as strength. If someone says, hey, let me buy you a drink, and you say, no, that's okay. Or, or if they say, let me buy you a drink, say, sure, let me get a ginger ale. Oh, you don't drink? Sure. Or you're not right. drinking? Say, no, no, I don't drink. And feel confident and secure with that. Okay? Because yeah. if the other person picks up from you that you're not confident and secure in that, then that brings on further inquiry. You know of what course. I'm saying? Right. So, but if you're confident and secure in that position, most people, most people would say, oh, okay, let me, give him a ginger ale. Give the yeah. man whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other so, aspect is just, I mean, there's the socialization, and then p- partly what I'm thinking of right now is just the transition aspect of, you know, it takes a while to sort of get back into the swing of things when you're, you know, in a professional environment and, mm-hmm. you know, and the timing can be kind of difficult when you're kind of transitioning as part of your treatment. Right. And I'm not sure what else to say. Just, you know, I, I'm thinking of, I, I don't want to sort of be dealing with some of the, the stress of kind of working through the latter stages of my treatment at the same time as, you know, trying to, trying to get out there and actually having to be, you know, interviewing for things. I think I know what you're saying, and I, I think if I know what you're saying, my answer would be always remember, you are the most important person in the world. You come first. Sure, of course, yeah. So you, you make sure that you're taking care of you because without you, that professional thing is not going to work. Yeah. Okay, so your recovery, i.e. you, has to be in order it has to get the proper attention, the proper care, the proper love, and all of that so that you can present the best professional you to the world. No, that's, that makes a great deal of sense, yeah. Okay. Um, that's pretty much all the questions I had, actually. All right. That's all the answers I got. Okay, thanks, man. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Mr. Producer, it's so important. Oftentimes, people think that the issue is on the other side when it's actually us. Sure, yeah. So yeah. We, want, we want to project that 
it's going, you know, that, that's them. Well, no, it's actually me. And what are my thoughts and what are my perceptions and how am I projecting that? Right. And so we, we yeah, have to always. And you know, what's funny is, and I think we've, we've even done a show probably a long time ago on the paraprofessional. Mm-hmm. And um, working in this field can can drive that out of you in a way that it wouldn't, you know, at a desk job or, or working somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you're surrounded by, you know, 24-7, right, you're surrounded by clients who have uh, really nothing but time on their hands to, pow- to point the uh, high-powered perception rifle right at you, um, you know, you, you're you're faced with looking at yourself in a light than you might otherwise would be in another profession and on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, just important to be open to that. And um, like you, you told him, which I appreciated, you know, you're not going to disclose that much or too much of your life story because you're going to maintain a professional boundary, but things can get kicked up in this field frequently. Um, and you do have to look at yourself and not just say it's everybody else. Right. Uh Let's go to some X Files questions. Um, this is from Got Joaquin. About a oh, okay. Wow, I didn't know we were that short on time. All right. Yes, so sir. Joaquin wants to know his friend, baby mama. That's what he wrote. Is smoking while she has a baby in her stomach. What kind of problems is the baby going to have once it's born? We have no idea because we're not doctors. Does he specify? Excuse me. Does he specify smoking what? No. So are we to presume cigarettes or weed? Well, we can presume whatever, but neither one of us are doctors, so we don't know. But, all, but I think all all reasonable people would say, "Oh, well, that's that's bad." Um, now that we we're, we're we we have more information available to us, but ultimately, there's nothing you know he can do, you know, in terms of controlling right. what she's doing. But um, hopefully, she quits. One more real yeah. quick. Uh, Joseph B. from San Mateo, how do you give family members advice that are still in their addiction to get sober? Uh, you can't. Um, and when I say you can't, what I mean is that n- no one's going to get get into recovery until they are ready. You can't twist their arm. You can't put them in a headlock. You can't you know, beat them up. They have to be ready to uh, start the recovery process. And sometimes bad things have to happen ending up in jail and blah, blah, blah before, but, the, but it is what it is. Yeah. Well said. Well said. All right. Sir, any final words? Cause I'm going to, I'm going to roll it right into the outro. I uh, just want to thank our guests for uh, being on the show and uh, we should be uh, back on the air two weeks from today, unless uh, you know, something comes up, but other than that, thanks. Beautiful. Awesome. Yeah, special thanks to our guest today. That was very much appreciated. Made for a very great show. Also appreciate everybody who called in just to give a listen on the guest line for the continued support. We always appreciate that. Everybody who called to participate in the recovery support time segment, we also appreciate you callers. Everyone out there is the reason we do this show. Uh, With that said, we hope everybody has a safe and productive couple of weeks and a fun couple of weekends. We will catch you all two weeks from now.
our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4pm Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Like us, friend us and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCG and on Twitter at OCG you can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.